And so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 6. And before we actually look at the verses here, by way of summary, we're, we're six chapters deep. We're almost through chapter 6. Chapter 6 is kind of lengthy. Um, so I'm tackling some of it today, but not all of it. I'm, I'm leaping over, no pun intended, but Jesus walking on the water. And we'll come back and visit that. But we're going to be going into the whole dialogue between Jesus talking about his body being the bread and his blood, which by inference... Um, is the juice. It's almost like he's introducing this New Testament concept as they leave Moses and the bread that was in the wilderness to Jesus, the bread that came down from heaven um, to bring life to all and any that would receive him. But chapter 1, we found that Jesus was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And there's more to that chapter 2. Also in that chapter is the announcement from John the Baptist, not John the, the Apostle here that's the author, but he said, Behold the Lamb of God which comes to take away the sin of the world. Moving on into chapter 2, um, it's been some time now, but we, when we're way back there, Jesus goes to a wedding, and they were going to run out of wine because wedding feasts lasted a week, and he wasn't able to predict the provisions and it's not like he could go to Sam's Club and buy those big boxes of wine or, or whatever. Um, if he didn't have it, he didn't have it. And so Jesus accommodates that wedding, almost taking the position of the bridegroom. And I think that's very interesting because he came for a bride, obviously his church. Chapter 3, we, we saw Jesus' encounter with um, Nicodemus, uh, a religious man. And he told him that he must be born again. Of course, you know... Much of John chapter 3 uh, is famous, especially the, around 316, obviously, for God so loved the world. Then you move into chapter 4. You move from a religious man to a Samaritan woman who was uh, both Jew and Gentile and kind of the reject of society. So you have this far-right religious person and this far-left unreligious person, although she was religious, but not considered legit. Uh, to her Jewish counterparts. And so um, Jesus calls her on her lifestyle. And then they have a discussion about living water, not the water from the well where you have to get it and you know drink again and be thirsty. Jesus was taking that physical element to try to teach a spiritual heavenly truth, as are the parables. Jesus uses earthly examples to bring down heavenly truths. And so, um, so they have that discussion, and Jesus says, you know, God is the Spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So God's after. He's looking for spirit-filled, spirit-led, true worshipers. He wants, not that he, he's like insecure, and he needs people just to bow down and worship him. He doesn't need that. I think the worship comes from an attitude of gratitude, like, thank you, Jesus, that you loved me enough, even while I was yet a sinner, you died for me, you rose again, you imparted your life to me, and now I get a communion with you, and we commune with God as much as we want, right? I mean, there's as much, a, you got all of God that you're going to get when you got saved, but the question for the Christian experience is how much of you does God get on a daily basis, and that's your choice. So, um, chapter 5, we see Jesus going to the, was it the pool of Bethsaida? Bethesda, and there he meets a guy 
um, who was there for a multitude of years. And then Jesus asked the question, do you want to be made whole? And I think that's a great question for anyone, really. Do you want to be made whole? Do you want it? Do you want the life of Christ? Do you want Christianity? Do you want Christ? What do you want? And I think he asked any and all people, what, do you want this? He's not imposing. He's a gentleman. And um, so he asked the guy, do you want to be made whole? And then you come to John chapter 6, and then Jesus, you see, he feeds the majority with physical food. He takes the five loaves and the two fish, and then he feeds everyone. And then there's doggy bags left over, Right? And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, and I don't want to go back into that, but I guess the compare and contrast of this is when it comes to physical food, he feeds the majority, and the majority want the physical food, and the majority comes seeking after Jesus for more free lunch. And then when he changes gears, as we'll see today in John chapter 6, where again he's taking that physical idea of bread, and he's making it a spiritual idea when it's all about Jesus, he fed the majority with the physical, but then you'll see he's feeding the minority with the spiritual. Because when it's just Jesus, people don't want just Jesus. They want something else. They, they don't want just Jesus. And Jesus desires to give everyone everything concerning his life, but how much of his life do we really want? So let's turn to John chapter 6, starting in verse 22. In verse 22 of John 6, the day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save the one whereinto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples on the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Now let me make, let me make a point on that real quick. Went away alone. In the Old Covenant, now you understand the timing of this. Because this is before the cross, it's still in the Old Testament. Jesus was born under the law. He lived under the law. He was circumcised the eighth day according to the law. They made... Uh, sacrifices uh, based on the law. He was under the Mosaic Old Covenant law. You can't have a testament unless there's the death of a testator. That's why when Jesus says, here is my, the, the bread is my body, and the wine is the cup representing my blood of the New Testament. So Jesus, before he went to the cross, was teaching of the New Covenant although he was living in the Old Covenant. And I say all that to say, when you went to the altar or to the temple in the Old Covenant, you went with a sacrifice. Either you brought it or you bought it. That was the money changer incident. So when you brought it, you went to the altar with a lamb, but you left alone. Right? Because the lamb, dead, gone. Temporary the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. It only covers it. It's temporary. But you went there with another, but you left alone in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, you go to the altar alone, but you leave with the Lamb. You don't leave alone. So when you, when you study the Gospels, 
and you look at proximity, where was Jesus? Well, he's either off by himself praying, or he went with his disciples, or he's around a multitude. Here he's, he's gone, and they're looking for him. In the new covenant, you don't go looking for Jesus. Are you understanding? It's location, location, location. And Jerry taught about this in Sunday school in John 17, the priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, to where he's praying. And, and let's, ask, let's ask this question. If Jesus was praying that I and the Father would be in you and you and me and we'd be one and we'd join uh, uh, each other for all of eternity, that we would share in the glory, does Jesus get his prayers answered? Yes. So he went to the cross. He removed the barrier that the old covenant lacked, which was absolute, unconditional, unlimited forgiveness. He forgave us so that he could fill us to answer his prayer. And now we're in Christ. So I say all that to say, we'll never be alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nine to the place where they did eat bread. So they're referring to, obviously, um, where Jesus fed the multitudes. After that, the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they took shipping and came to Capernaum for seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, uh, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat the loaves and were filled. Right? We talked about that before, but I'll talk about it again. He knows the hearts of people. He says, you're not seeking me for me, who I am, you're seeking me for what I can do. Kind of the chicken in every pot mentality, right? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, continuing on, he said, uh, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for the meat that will endure to everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. This is very interesting. Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Is that not a loaded question? And the, the, the question of questions. What must I do to be saved? What do I do to get righteous? What do I do to maintain fellowship or get in the fellowship or have fellowship? What do I do to be accepted? What do I do to be justified? What do I do? What do I do? Right? There's got to be something that I could do so Jesus answered and said unto him, This is the work of God, that you believe on him who he has sent. So he summarizes it. Here's the work. Believe on Jesus who God has sent. They said therefore unto him, Well, what sign should... <laughs> you just said, I'm really hot in this speaker. Like my, I'm really asthmatic or breathy or out of shape or something. I could really hear myself up there. Um, they said therefore unto him well what sign showest thou then that we may see you and believe what does you work now he just fed them and so Jesus he knows their motive and he says or they say our fathers did eat uh, manna in the desert as it is written he gave them bread from heaven then Jesus said unto them truly truly I say unto you 
Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's making two statements there. First of all, Moses wasn't the baker of the manna. God did that, right? And remember, God put a, what's that when you get something and there's an expiration date? You know, when you buy something? God put an expiration date on the manna. It was one day. And I think the reason why he did that was he gave them manna, they got it. They couldn't hoard it up back to Costco again or Sam's Club. They couldn't just fill up their, their wagon full and just, you know, hunker down for the, the, the remainder of the 40 years. He made it so they were daily dependent upon the Father because it got moldy. And so they had to go, they had to trust God daily, daily trust God. So they left Egypt by faith, but they had to continue to walk by faith. So it is in the Christian experience as well. It's not just, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life, and then we don't have to trust him on a daily basis. We still trust him daily. So continuing on, he said, um, what's that? Verse 33 For the bread of God um, is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. Again, he's going to be referring to spiritual life versus physical life. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto him, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. God doesn't give us things or some things. He gives us to someone. He called himself the water of life. He calls himself the bread of life. He calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way. He's the truth. But in, in all of the examples, he's the door of life. He's the shepherd of life. And all of these examples that he gives, he's giving earthly examples to explain a heavenly truth that Jesus, though he was cloaked in skin, he is not a man. He came as a man, but that's not who he is. He's God. He's everlasting God. The one, as our, as our banner says, in him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. He's the, he's the genesis of life. He's the spark, the initiator. If, there, if you didn't have a connection to God, if, if there was no God, there would be no life. Even people that don't know God are living a life void of God's life, but because they have life, it's because of God. He's the, he's the initiator. He started it. He's the genesis of life. And so here he's just trying to explain that he is the bread of life. Um, and then he said, he that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. What does that mean? Well, you eat a sandwich today, you're probably going to want a sandwich tomorrow. So obviously he's not talking about your appetite. Um, and he's definitely not saying, hey, everyone, grab a knife and grab a fork and start on one of my arms, preferably my left, right? Wait, no, that's my guitar hand. Um, wait, how am I going to strum it with my, okay, forget it. Don't start on it. There wasn't enough Jesus to go around. So he's not teaching cannibalism, you know, like everyone grab a knife and fork and dig in. I know that sounds crude and crass, but these guys, that's what they thought. They said, this is a hard saying. Who could believe this? Um, but then he said, but I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father has given me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. 
How do you come to Jesus? By grace through faith, believing in who he is. Well, let's pray. And before we pray, I just want to say you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Not physically. Well, my wife would argue, yeah, physically, yeah. But spiritually, if you have consumed Jesus, when you eat something, it it goes into your body and that food becomes a part of your body. As you digest it, it goes everywhere and it becomes a part of your body. When you receive Jesus, he, you consume him. You partake of his life in a spiritual sense. Do you, you kind of get the idea behind that? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you guide us through your word this morning. I pray that you would just minister to the hearers. Um, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and help us to taste and see that you're good, Lord Jesus. And so this takes the work of the Holy Spirit, and I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate um, hearts and minds this morning and that we would leave here knowing you more but also desiring to share you more um, in the community in which we live. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So point number one, um, Jesus for Jesus' sake. I almost wrote for Christ's sake, but that's become such a bad slang that, that, you, that you wouldn't even hear it if I wrote it. But do you, you know what I mean, Jesus for Jesus' sake, right? So Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. So they weren't coming to Jesus for Jesus. Um, they were coming for the free lunch. And you can't fault them, really, for that. I mean, what else were they, what else were they thinking? Think about this. They just had free lunch, and food was a huge commodity back then. If they could make Jesus king, then it would, it would be kind of like this cradle-to-grave living, and they would think that they would have a chicken in every pot if Jesus was their king. Remember, after he did that, they wanted to make him king, and this is when he left. They said, let's make him king. Because think about it. Rome wasn't taking care of them. Think about how difficult it would be back in those days. For us, we got DoorDash. You don't even have to leave your home and they'll bring you hot fries and a hot burger. They will even do your shopping for you. They have apps where you just pick the things and they'll they'll come and bring it to you, to your door. Could you imagine back in these days where you had to actually build a fire? They didn't have microwaves. They didn't have ovens. Build a fire. If you got food, let's say you killed um, a deer to get to have any of the venison, you'd have to skin it, bleed it out, uh, you know, prep it and all that. kind. And how would you store it without refrigeration? You guys have freezers in your garages to put more meat in your freezer in your garage, right? So for us, food is not a struggle with refrigeration, To light a fire in our house, it goes click, click, click. The gas stove does that. And if you want it faster than that, you throw it in the microwave and you hit beep. They even have microwaves. Ours is old, but like quick minute. Because you know how long that would take to type in one, zero, zero. (laughs) One step. I mean, microwaves are so fast, just quick minute. Boom. So... We're talking in a day and age to where food was a huge commodity. And by the way, 
the life expectancy was about half of our life expectancy as it is today. So you got to think, food wasn't easy to come by. Government wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a social program where they had food banks where you lined up. Bread, fish, all the factors considering like lack of refrigeration, uh, you know, all the labor that, so you would probably be waking up thinking about food, how you're going to get food. Your whole life would be consumed with the thought of food, right? Because it's not like they go to bed thinking like, oh, did I take something out to defrost it? Hmm. They weren't thinking anything like that. Um, Marge, did you put, did you put a roast in the crock pot? It wasn't anything like that at all. It was a hard thing to come by. So I don't fault them. When they're thinking physical food, uh, yeah, if I was in this group, I would be thinking the same thing, right? Um, but I do want to say this because God records this in, in, his, in his word. They didn't want Jesus for Jesus' sake, despite the lack of food and the economy and their living conditions and stuff. So if they could make Jesus king, and they're thinking, they're, they're thinking like, man, if we just make Jesus king, think of all the benefits. I mean, this, this guy could just give us free food every day, right? Talk about socialism or communism. <laughs> they wanted the go- king Jesus and his government just to give him food every day, just like he did with the fish and the loaves of bread. So in essence, they, didn't, they were more interested in what kind of kingdom it was rather than who the king was. And they, they wanted the hand of God and not the heart of God. I've showed this slide before because I think it's clever. It's both hand and heart, right? <laughs> they wanted the blessings rather than an intimate relationship with the blesser. Uh, they would rather have something rather than a someone. And that's something in the form of what's on my plate, right? Because that's what I'm thinking about most of. They could not sing um, on the shores of Tiberias, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I like that song, by the way. That's a really good song. But they couldn't sing that because they wouldn't rather have Jesus. They'd rather have bread and fish in abundance and free. Not to, any, not to offend any cat lovers in here, but these people were like cats in that they came around for the food the free food, but they didn't want anything to do with the giver of the food. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Dogs are so much better and cooler. Is, it like the, is there even a debate in that? Are we even still arguing? As advanced as we are, we should have come to figure out that dogs are far superior to cats. It's just like a no-brainer. But let's ask this question. If Christ were all that we had, would Christ be all that we need or want? I ask this question a lot, and it's a good question to ask. It's just a hard one to live when you think about it. I mean, Job pulled it off, right? He, everything was taken away, and God was all that he had, and God was all that he needed. But that's kind of a difficult question to, to really ponder. If, if Christ were all that we had— so you're coming to Jesus and you're thinking, man, we just had bread and fish, so much so, 5,000 people were fed and we had leftovers. This is amazing, right? And then you come to Jesus, you're seeking him. He, he, they want to make him king for that reason. He takes off. 
They're, they're seeking him. They're coming. They're, where is he? Where is he? Then they finally meet him, and, and Jesus says, you're not seeking me for me. You're seeking me for food. You're like, what? <laughs> and so, and then he preaches this sermon about that you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This idea of, like, what? If you were there, you, you got to put yourself in their shoes. You'd be thinking, is this guy mad? Is this crazy? And let me just say this. This was the beginning of the end of Jesus' mega church ministry. After John chapter 6, he went from thousands and multitudes down to very few. It was the ministry of decline from this point on. He, it's almost like if his disciples could have, could have saw where he was going with this, they would have said, Jesus, just keep your mouth shut. You're going to lose everyone. <laughs> your ministry is going to be gone. Just don't talk about this body and blood thing. That's weird, right? Keep the, keep the people's attention. Give them what they want. You know, tickle their ears. Tell them a funny story and some jokes. Keep them entertained. But don't speak about this, like, New Testament idea where, where Moses was, you know, old school and done, and you're coming in with this body and blood idea with this new school, New Testament thing. People don't like new things. They don't. They're kind of content, even as bad as it is. They're, they're content with the, the bread that their fathers ate and were dead. They still want death bread. Not deathbed, death bread. Or death breath. Um, they still want death bread, not living bread. And so, there they were. They were there. And I want to say this, that the devil doesn't have any new tricks, really. Adam and Eve had a perfect childhood experience. Isn't that an evil, wicked-looking snake? <laughs> Look at that thing. If you were walking in, in a, like, a, like a jungle or a forest and you saw that thing hanging with his wee, beady little evil eyes and his horns and, ugh, that thing is creepy. Anyways, Adam and Eve had a perfect childhood experience and could not sit in therapy and blame their parents or come up with some sort of daddy issues to blame. Think about it. God was all that they had and was all that they needed, but they felt like God alone was not enough. All I'm saying is the devil doesn't have any new tricks. He created this sense of deficit with Adam and Eve. I mean, think about their, they had a perfect childhood experience. They had a perfect paradise experience. They had a perfect living experience, perfect home experience, perfect marital experience. They had a perfect, uh, you know, relational experience with God. Everything was perfect. And the devil introduces the idea of a deficit. If God is all that you have, God's not all that you need. You need something more than God. And so the, so the trick was, so Job passed the test, but Adam and Eve and countless others, when left with Jesus plus nothing equals everything, often fail, settling for something or someone less than Jesus and other than Jesus. And how many times have you fallen for the devil's tricks? I have. The devil wants us to get our eyes and focus off of Jesus and onto something or someone else, even if it's something good. Even if it's something good. Because Jesus is the best, but if he could get you to settle for something good, 
a little bit lower than the best that's not Jesus, then he's almost one. Second Corinthians, Paul's writing to this church, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. It's a good jealousy. He's like, I, I'm, I'm happy for you guys. For I've espoused unto you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin or bride to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled or tricked or deceived Eve through his subtlety, his craftiness, his deceit, his lies, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. From the simplicity that is in Christ. When David's heart was aligned correctly, and when ours is too, this could be a lyric in our personal song, Back Unto the Lord. I was going to sing this, but I didn't want to, like, ungrace your ears. (laughs) I'm not a good singer. Um, But I wrote a song from this um, psalm many years ago, because I love the psalm. If you'll turn to the next slide, I believe. Psalm 73:25. He asked this question, "Whom have I in heaven but thee?" I'm even singing it in my head right now. And there's none upon earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know David had ups and downs. But this is kind of saying the same thing. You're all whom have I who Who have I in heaven but you? God, you're the object of heaven. You know, in Revelation, we're talking about how Jesus, when when the rapture occurs and the the church goes up and John represents that sort of experience uh, sometime in the future, could be today. Um, But he talks about the one that's sitting on the throne. And so, yeah, heaven has a lot of like dimensions and and things that are, that are specific about it, but he's saying heaven's not about a place necessarily. It's about a person. Whom have I in heaven but you? If Jesus were not in heaven, would you still want to go to heaven? And there's none on earth I, that I desire besides you. So he says in heaven and in earth, you're the object. You're the object of my faith. And I'm saying, that's a really cool psalm, but I can't sing that every day of my life. Why? Because there's shiny things that pass before me. <laughs> and, you know, our, our attention, it, it gets so diverted oftentimes. So, I, I empathize with the guys that, that they're struggling with food. And they come to Jesus and they're like, What? I thought you were going to give us more food, and now you're talking about an intimate relationship with you. And so they all went away. He went from 5,000 to 12 with one sermon. So let's move on. Second point here. The work of God is to believe in Jesus. Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God's and Jesus work the work of God. And Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that you believe on him, Jesus, whom he, God, has sent. And so this is the question of question, and the answer always seems too good to be true when we analyze it. What must I or can I do to become righteous, accepted, loved, or to gain and garner eternal life? And the answer from God has always been nothing but to simply believe. Simply believe. This is probably 
a common verse. You might even see where I'm going with this. When um, the prisoners escaped and the guard was wondering where they were and he brought them out and he said, uh, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they came back and they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He didn't say go get baptized or join a church or you know, um, stop doing this and start doing that. He said, here's how you could be saved. Here's the only thing that you can do is you could place your faith alone in Christ alone. So basically there's only two religions on earth, the do religions and the done. And these guys are asking, well, Jesus, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? So we don't work for eternal life. We work from eternal life. Eternal life with God is not achieved. It's received. And, and you all know this. Eternal life with Christ is a gift in which it was purchased by God's work for us and not our work for him. I like this passage in Romans. And you might be familiar with it, but let's go over it because I think there's a lot of verses in Romans that people go to. But on the topic of work versus faith and grace, this illustrates it really crystal clear. What shall we say um, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And we were at this scripture last week in Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness before the law, before circumcision, before, before he took um, his son up, which is in Genesis 22, uh, to put him on the altar. Because here's something you've got to remember. Faith without works is dead. And when you go to James uh, chapter 2, um, anyways, that will answer your question. Abraham was saved way before he took his son up. Uh, to, to uh, be sacrificed, which God stopped that process, as you know. So before it all, Abraham simply believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? If you work, you get your wage. If you don't work, you don't get a wage. And so he's trying to use that concept but saying, but you're getting this as a gift without work, even though it's counterintuitive. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Because you can see what's kind of built into us. Yeah, I get it. It's by grace. It's free. And you get it without work. But what must I do? There's got to be something. It can't just be all of Jesus. It can't just be, you know, Jesus did everything. He did all the work. And then I just, I enter into that. It's got to be Jesus plus something. There's got to be something I could do to fill in the gap. Because we, we feel like we need some sort of contribution to this thing. But he's saying it's a gift. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered or forgiven. Okay, you got to see this passage, Romans eleven six, And if by grace, then is it no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Do you see how they cancel each other out? It's like oil and water. 
They're both great on their own, but you can't mix them together because then they kind of cancel each other out. You can't drink oil, right? <laughs> but you can't drive your car without it either, you know? Um, and you can't put water in your gas tank or in your oil. That'll ruin it as well. But you can't live without water. So they both have their purposes. And if you think about works, you're saying, well, man, that sounds like you just received Jesus and then you don't do anything. That's what everyone thinks because it's still a too-good-to-be-true mentality. Have you ever received a gift from someone and it's been, it was such an awesome gift that your attitude was like, whatever, forget you, you know? I'm not going to show any gratitude. My life will never reflect any sort of like thankfulness at all. <laughs> no one's like that. And when we understand to the magnitude of the, the work that Jesus did to give us the grace gift that he gave, we work from this attitude of gratitude. We don't work to get eternal life. We do our good works because we have this abundant life and because we're in Christ and he's with us, and so we want to share in this life so we do good works from this position, not for that position. So don't think that just because you're saved by grace, there's no works at all. No, we, we do do good works, but we don't do good works to maintain like fellowship or relationship or justification or righteousness or sanctification all the works we do is from a place of gratitude. Thank you for this amazing grace gift, Jesus. Let me show you how much I appreciate it uh, by what I do. But let me just say this. If you don't do anything, is it still your gift? Yeah, but for those people that don't do anything, does that show an attitude of gratitude? No. So you don't have to have an attitude of gratitude, but maybe those that don't do any good works after their salvation, not for their salvation. Maybe they don't know about the gift and the giver of the gift. Maybe they don't really, maybe it was like fire insurance. I just received Jesus to get out of jail free card it, you know, something like that. Um, but Jesus was both the giver and the gift of God that came down from heaven. So to those who received him, the search for eternally being satisfied is over. The internal itch is scratched. He is the bread of life. So to those who do not believe and receive Christ, they keep searching for food and for drink that will never satisfy until they die without life. I think it's in Romans 14 where Jesus says, the, no, the Apostle Paul says, uh, the kingdom of God is not of meat and drink, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So kingdom thinking, because Jesus says, my kingdom's not of the earth. It's not with signs and observations. But if we're going to be kingdom people with kingdom thinking, um, it's not about the physical food. But people that do not want King Jesus, they keep searching to be satisfied. And they'll always, they'll search for this religion. They'll search for this philosophy. And it will never satisfy. Look, if you, if you have Jesus in your life, are you looking for another? Are you... Are you hungering for a different bread of life, <laughs> a different water of life? Are you thirsty for something else? And, and I guarantee you the answer is no, you aren't. You're satisfied. But how much of this eternal buffet of Jesus are we partaking? That's the question. And he's there for the partaking as much as you want. So in John 6, and back in our text, this is further along. We didn't read this part, 
But in John chapter 6, he says this, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread which I give him is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So let's, let's move on to our third point. The old versus the new. The Moses bread equals death. The Jesus bread equals life. We just kind of read that a little bit. But before that, he says, Jesus said unto them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but my Father uh, gives you the true bread from heaven. So Moses did not give them bread, obviously, or God provided the bread, and it was a picture. He even said the rock in, in 1 Corinthians 10.4, the rock that, that followed them in the wilderness, that rock was Christ. He was the rock that gave the water. He's the bread. It was all picture towards the person. So just as they in the Old Testament, wandering in the wilderness, murmured and complained about that bread, remember, manna meant like, what is this? What is this? And they didn't like it. They didn't want it. The people that Jesus just fed are also murmuring and complaining about the bread of life. So it's like, darn if you do, darn if you don't. They were complaining about physical bread that came in a miraculous way. Now they're complaining about Jesus not giving them physical bread bread but that he's the spiritual bread and if you have him then you will be satisfied and you'll never hunger you'll never thirst but they're like I don't want that that's not enough give me free lunch you know let's go that way rather than this way forget the spiritual let's go to the physical and so Jesus wasn't enough and this was the start after they murmured and complained about Jesus being the bread of life this was the start of the ministry of decline for Jesus So after John 6, when they all leave, they never come back. And Jesus is okay with that. He could have kept quiet, but he didn't. So he goes from 5,000 to 12. And later on, you'll find that he turns to the 12. Will you guys leave also? And they said, Peter says, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom? Not where or what. Who? To whom can we go? So just as Jesus reduced the 613 laws of Moses down to two laws, love God and love others, from this point onto the cross, his numbers went from big to small. But this is something interesting. Even though it went in decline, in his earthly ministry from this point to the cross, the numbers plummeted. Attendance was way down. His megachurch ministry over. So even though that was the case and he was okay with it, the cross happens, the resurrection happens, Acts, you know, chapter one, he ascends, Acts chapter two, he descends via the Holy Spirit and fills the people, thousands get saved. A few chapters later, thousands get saved. Now these people are going out preaching Hundreds and hundreds. And for the last 2,000 years, this ministry of decline has been a ministry of incline. He has been increasing his church. He said, I will build my church. Um, the, The people were multiplied daily. And the Lord added on the church daily such as should be saved. And so Jesus was okay with that, obviously, because he knew that his church 
would grow. It's like the size of a mustard seed, right? And then it would just, it would just blossom and grow and expand. And his, his church has been worldwide. It's been, it's been in places and people you don't even know of and I don't even know of. He's been reaching people in the Amazon jungle, despite what the atheists say. He's been reaching people all over the globe in the remotest parts to the most populous parts. Jesus is a huge success, even though when you look from a pragmatic viewpoint, if you're just to look at the annals of history and say, well, let's look at this guy's life. Oh, man, pathetic. What an unsuccessful ministry. You could say the same about Noah, too. Dude, it took you 120 years and you only had eight people saved? Pathetic. The opposite could be said for um, uh, Jonah. He didn't even want God, really. And he didn't even want to do the work of God, really. He went kind of rebelliously and thousands get saved. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Here's a rebellious preacher that's like, oh man, do I have to? And here's Noah like, Jesus is coming, the floods are coming, get saved. And the preacher of righteousness for 120 years, eight people. Jesus, thousands. And then he's like, oh, by the way, I'm introducing you something that's different from the bread of Moses. It's the bread of life. It's all about Jesus. And they're like, nope, we don't want it. He's he's like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Because he's a gentleman. He's not forcing anyone. So this was the beginning of the end for his like large mega church movement and he was just fine with that. He never wrote a New York Times bestseller. He never had thousands and thousands of Instagram followers or a, you know a huge social media presence. He was not sought after to be a keynote convention speaker to fill stadiums. You know, he never um, got these flesh followers to come back to be faith followers. He never got them back because they didn't really want Jesus for Jesus. So his er earthly ministry was little, but his heavenly ministry continues to be countless as the stars of heaven. And as we'll see in Revelation, when we get to chapter 7 of Revelation, so many people are saved that you can't even number them during the tribulation period. It's almost like more people get saved in the tribulation than the last 2,000 years in the church age, almost. And it kind of makes sense because I remember in the ministry just a few years ago always referencing the population of the world at 6 billion. Did you know I had to update that recently? It's like 7 point something billion. Do you remember saying 6 billion, 6 billion? Do you remember that number? Like, yeah, now we're, we're to, the numbers are climbing and it makes sense that millions and millions and millions of people would be saved during whenever the Lord comes back and the tribulation period happens. So, it wasn't, that, it wasn't what Jesus did that shrank his ministry, but what he said. Basically is you must consume Jesus and he must be in your life and become your life. And they didn't want that exclusive intimate relationship with Jesus. So most people are just fine without Jesus being consumed and a part of their life until problems come and then they shoot up flare guns to heaven as a sign for help and then they want Jesus again. And Jesus, is, he's okay with all of that. But Jesus knows our incurably religious hearts. Look at what he says, and he's going to be quoting Isaiah. He says, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why not walk your disciples according to the traditions of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? But he answered and said unto them, 
Well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. Uh, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And then he says, Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things you do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Lip service. So Jesus, he knows. He knows vain worship. He knows false worship. But he's after true worship. And that's whom the Father seeks. But Jesus was never concerned about fame or popularity, only like sincerity, people that genuinely want to have intimacy uh, with Christ. And he's there for the, the offering. So you can take Jesus or leave Jesus. That's your choice. He is a gentleman. But they, didn't, they did not like his answer, his kingdom plans, his anti-religious establishment attitude, his counterculture, all-inclusive ways. And it, they weren't so sure about this body and blood concept of the new covenant. They weren't all about that. They liked water to wine Jesus. They liked medical miracle doctor Jesus. They liked free lunch with doggy bag Jesus. They liked water walking Jesus, but not truth speaking Jesus. That's not the Jesus that they liked or wanted or expected. They didn't like truth speaking Jesus. Jesus was not rejected based on what he did, but what he said. Just as Jesus was not crucified for what he did, but for who he claimed to be. So look at John 6, 41. Back in our text, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They're like, really? You look like a person, not sourdough. Or for them, it would be like rye, right? (laughs) Um, I don't know if they had rye back then. Or Ezekiel bread. So they murmured because he said, Think about this. So Jesus heals the blind, heals the deaf. He makes the lame to walk. He set the captives free. The demoniac that was cutting himself in Mark 5 and was, I mean, the psych wards would have a heyday with this. He's schizophrenic. He's a multiple personalities. He says he's legion. I mean, we've tried Prozac. We've tried lithium. We've tried methadone. We've tried this, that. We've tried straight jackets. We've tried um, padded rooms. We've tried, uh, 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 you know, shock treatment. We've tried it all but nothing seems to work. And then when you met Jesus, he was clothed and found in his right mind. So he heals people with mental disorders and illnesses and demonically possessed. So it was nothing that he did. I mean, Jesus, the Bible says he went around doing good. So it was nothing that he did that ticked him off because he did good. It's, it's what he said. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he said. And Jesus doesn't even edit himself. He even goes further with this message. He doesn't even, the disciples are like, mute, come on, we're going to lose all this. Look at all these people, man. This is mega. And Jesus is quite fine with just speaking the truth in love. So they murmured and complained, not at what Jesus did, but who he said, and I think they would rather have silly putty Jesus or gumby Jesus to mold and to make after their own image. For you younger people, I was going to put the slides up there of gumby and silly putty, but just my own personal survey, who knows what silly putty is? Young, young people, yeah, young people. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, young people in the mind. 
How about Gumby? Does anyone remember Gumby? Okay, Gumby, you could like stretch. Or remember that wrestling dude that just had the, like the Speedos and the, yeah. I bought Adam a mini version of that. We still were seeing like, let's see how far we could go. But I think people like stretch arm Jesus, Gumby Jesus, silly putty Jesus, to mold him and to make him after their own image. Because they didn't like the version that Jesus was coming out with. They didn't. Obviously, this is the last time they hung out with Jesus. This was it. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. This was the last time. See you, Jesus. And you've got to think about sometimes when people leave church and they leave their, you know, see you, Jesus. I don't know for the reasons. Oftentimes the reason I'm told is not really the real reason, and I get that. Um, and I try to help people navigate that. But these people are leaving Jesus, not for what he did, because he did good. They're leaving Jesus for what he said. They just didn't, it didn't line up with their preconceived theology, their systematic theology, their religious preconceived views, their, their king that who they thought was to be king and to what he was supposed to bring to the table, which in their case was food. <laughs> so, but they couldn't have it both ways. And, and we'll kind of finish up here. I want to make this point. You can't be married to two people at the same time. Okay. You've maybe seen this reality show. I was in Utah sitting down at a Starbucks, which in Utah, Starbucks, they weren't, you had to drive to go to a Starbucks. They weren't on every corner because coffee is not very popular. I'm sitting at a Starbucks. I'm sitting across from a youth pastor we're having coffee and fellowship, and um, this guy gets up that's sitting next to us. He gets up and goes to the bathroom, and we're sitting outside, and he goes, and he's sitting with a woman, and he goes, dude, do you know who that is? I'm like, no. He's like, you've never seen that show? I'm like, no, and it was this guy right here. He was, he was sitting right next to us at Starbucks, and um, so after he said that and he came back from the bathroom, I'm like, mm-hmm. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> um, but my point is not polygamy, obviously. Uh, but my point is that, and, and accordingly, I only pulled out two, but these verses basically say, if you're married to one woman and that you marry another or you sleep around or have, you know, adultery or fornication with another woman, you, break, you can't do that. You're breaking the marital vows. And so this is... Uh, uh, not legit, not lawful, not legal. Now, Jesus was offering a new covenant, a way out of the old covenant relationship. He's introducing, don't think in terms of religious or, uh, you know, contract or agreement. Think of relationship. He's offering a new relationship, one where these guys could be, you know, uh, separated legally from a relationship with the old covenant Moses and be lawfully and legally into a new relationship uh, with Jesus. So Jesus was offering the bread and the wine, his body and his blood, as the New Testament relationship with God to the people. And the choice was simple. You could either have Moses, which is familiar and old, or Jesus. You could either have the old or the new. You could either have death or life, but you can't have them both at the same time. And I think that's where they drew the line and said, you know what? I don't know about this new thing. It's a new thing. 
Sounds weird. Never heard it before. Aren't you the carpenter from Nazareth? You know, we don't even, you don't even come from the lineage. You're a priest, but you're not a Levite? Hmm, I don't know. You're saying that you're, you're, you're going to give us a new commandment? Who gave you legislative power? Oh, you're all three branches of God's government. You're the legislative branch, the judicial branch, and the executive branch. You're all three in one? Okay, I don't know. I liked it when you turned the water into wine. I liked it when you gave us bread and fish. I like that. This whole new covenant body and blood thing where it's just you and you only. It's not like rules and regulation. It's a relationship with you that I need to consume you. You need to be a part of my life. I'm not so sure about that. Maybe I'll date you both. Maybe I'll be married to Moses and I'll just go out with, I'll date Jesus on the weekend. Can't do that. So Paul knows this. And he gives this illustration in Romans chapter 7. I taught on this probably um, a year ago when we were in Galatians. Um, but if you're like me, you don't remember things from a year ago. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, you all who understand the law of Moses, so surely you know that the law rules over people only while they're alive. Look, if you owe a $100,000 in back taxes, if you die you're not obligated to pay it. When they sign people up for like three life sentences equaling 356 years, no one fulfills that whole sentence. When you die, the sentence is over. And that's what he's saying. Death terminates the law, relationship. Death terminates it. If you're, this is one off the top of my head, you're driving 150 miles an hour drunk, and you fly off a bridge and you die, but you cause a lot of damage to, you know, say you didn't hurt anyone or I don't know, but you're not liable for that. They're not going to get you for drunk driving, reckless driving. You died. You did. You did. <laughs> so the law doesn't have any bearing on you. That's what he's trying to say. It's like what the law says about marriage. A woman must stay married to her husband as long as he is alive. But if, if her husband dies, she is made free from the law of marriage. Do you see what he's teaching here? He's not teaching on marriage. He's using marriage as an illustration to teach your relationship to the law and to Jesus. But if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, the law says she is guilty of adultery. But if her husband dies, she is made free from the law of marriage. So if she marries another man after her husband dies, she is not guilty of adultery. In the same way, my brothers and sisters, your old selves died. And he taught about that in Romans chapter 6. Obviously, we're reading Romans chapter 7. But if you read Romans 6, that's the context. Your old man died. Your old man died. Count yourself dead. You're dead. You died. So he says, now you belong to someone else. You belong to the one who was raised from death. We belong to Christ so that we can be used in service to God or bear fruit unto God. In the past, the law held us as prisoners, but our old selves died. We were made free from the law. So now we serve God in a new way. Not in the old way, Moses, the law, with written rules. Now we serve God in a new way, the spirit, internally, working itself out externally. But I want you to see that, because you can't be married to Jesus and date Moses on the weekends. 
You can't be married to Moses and then be married to Jesus at the same time. That'd be, what's it flipped when polyamorous or, well, just say polygamy. You can't be in a polygamous relationship. So what he's trying to say is to legally take you out of this marriage to, to Moses and the law, when Christ died, you died. Now you're legally able to be joined into the Lord in this new covenant relationship without breaking the law being married to the old covenant. Do you see what that's getting at there? So we're free. We're free. We're free. And Jesus had to kill us to take us out of that relationship to legally allow us, at least offer us, an opportunity to be married as the bride of Christ uh, to Jesus for now and forever. So last point, and we'll, we'll hurry up on this last point. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Have you ever struggled with the idea of once you're saved, always saved, eternal security? Has anyone ever gone through that journey? I'm raising my hand before anyone because I remember all through Bible college and seminary, I struggled with that for most of the time. I really did. I thought it was too good to be true. I'd spent many years trying to work my way into heaven, and then God revealed to me it's all of grace. It's not me plus Jesus. It's it's all of Jesus and none of me for my salvation. But then I, I got introduced to just just a different way of like experiencing the Christian life, and it caused me to be focused on myself, I guess, and if I was doing enough, and if I wasn't doing enough, how much, how good is good enough, and how much do I, and then it caused me to be so confused that I was doubting my salvation. I don't know, maybe God didn't even want me. Maybe I didn't mean it. I don't feel so saved. Well, let me try to overcompensate by doing a lot of religious works to maybe make myself feel a little bit better, and I struggled with that. I don't know if you've ever struggled with eternal life, and once you're saved, you're always saved. It seems too good to be true, right? Like, what? It doesn't make sense. So I think that's okay. I think that's natural. I think God's perfectly fine with it. He wants you saved more than you want yourself saved. Look at the length that he went to, right? So you're in good hands. It's okay. Lord, I believe. Help my, help my unbelief. So we didn't receive temporary life, rather eternal, everlasting, unlosable life. God is not who we thought. So Jesus came to show us that the Father desires to give us life, to be our life, and to do life uh, with us and in us. So it's okay to wrestle with this. And I'll leave you with these two verses that I think God used in my life to help me. First one was in 1 John. This is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. Titus says, this faith and knowledge makes us sure that we have eternal life. God promised that life to us before the world or time began, and God does not lie. He's promised you that, and he can't lie. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? I'm sure you do. Um, I'm sure you do but I'm also sure that some of you don't. How could I go through Bible college, most of it, studying the Bible? 
and even wondering, am I good enough for heaven? I don't know if you want me. I don't even know if you like me. (laughs) I don't even know if you're going to put up with me. So I'm I'm sure people do struggle with that. And there's many other verses, but those are two really good verses to help you with God's character, that he loves you, he wants you. He not only loves you, he likes you. That was a hard one for me. I know he loves me, like, yeah, but does he like me? Right? I'm not so sure. He loves you and likes you. And he's not an Indian giver, and I don't mean that in a, you know, like a politically incorrect way. I mean it in the way that he's not going to give you something and then take it away. Okay? Let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the experience to come and gather as your believers. Whatever was said today, Lord, that that the Holy Spirit authorizes in an individual's life, may those things, perhaps not all things, but may those things that people have connected with and bore witness to, uh, sustain them and encourage them and, and help them And so, Lord, as we leave here, help us to be the church. Help us to leave the doors, not just doing church right now, but leaving here and going to be the church to a world that needs to know who you are so that they could not just settle for physical food and physical life that will never satisfy, but so that they could have a relationship with you and have spiritual life that will eternally satisfy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.